0: let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive into some heavy lifting today. Lord, we're thankful for, again, the rain that waters the earth. Um, we're certainly not concerned about drought anymore, um, maybe flooding, but we uh, thank you that you're the one who controls times and seasons, and that ultimately brings us together today to uh, study your word and be your church. So, We pray that you would bless our time. I pray that you would help me as I try to help us through this important question, what do we teach here, particularly about salvation, and that you would cause us to be a time of encouragement and upbuilding for these who are checking out uh, things here at our land of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you done with that? Oh, okay. Take your time. All right, Um, session three. Ready to do some heavy lifting today? Uh, Say yes. Yes. Okay, good, very good. (laughs) So far, we've tackled two core values, Um, passion for God and intercessory prayer. Today, we want to head into a third, which will take us, it always does, full sessions to work through, but it's very important, and I'm going to try to emphasize the importance by asking you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3 as we begin this morning. 1 Timothy 3, one of what we call the pastoral epistles. Paul writes to his protege in Ephesus to help equip him for doing church as a pastor, and this is one of those books that Bible teachers love to teach because Paul tells you what his purpose is plain as day. <coughs> it's not a puzzle to try to figure it out. And he does that in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Somebody like to read that for us, please. 1 Timothy three fourteen through 16.
1: I hope to come to you soon that I am writing these things to you so that if I delay,
0: Paul's writing to Timothy, hoping to come. But if I can't make it, I'm putting this down on papyrus because I want you to know what. What's his purpose? How to behave. How to behave. How to do church, right? And then he uses a couple of word pictures to capture the essence of what the church is. Do you see them? What's one? Well, it's the Church of a Living God. It's
1: a living
0: <coughs> organism, I guess. Okay. All right. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of that, but I'll accept that. <laughs> or a pillar of a buttress. Ah. And, now and that, and see, pastors who do this kind of Q&A kind of thing just are always so thankful when somebody just hits what they were thinking. But again, we're over Yeah, pillar and buttress. What? What's that a picture of? Any any architectural measures? The building, building, right? A pillar, support, a buttress that which shores up. You know, I don't know how many of you got up at 4:30 in the morning yesterday to watch the royal wedding. Anybody? I I did not. No. Okay. Castles, flying buttress pillars, you know, holding up the building. There's another one that is the first word picture. What else does he call the church? All of you were born into one. a household, a household thank you. A family. All right. But the one I'm going to focus on is this pillar and buttress of what? Truth. 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 It really matters to you, I trust. It should that in choosing a' home, we have some idea as much as possible what is their conception of what's true? And where, from whence, do we get that? (coughs) These two sessions are about trying to answer that question, what do we teach, and why do we teach it? (laughs) There are three key words for you in understanding this about or land of grace, that might be ways you can hang your hat on them to think through this biblical, confessional reform. Whatever I mean about these, which do you think is the most important? Are you hoping I'm going to tell you it's the most important? Absolutely, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what we care about, even though these two words are important here, and it's important for me to convey that to you as you're working your way through what Orlando Race Church is about. This matters more than any other. <coughs> These two matter as well, starting with confessional. Every church that preaches the gospel, we would hope, would want to say, that it matters that the truth conveyed from the pulpit or in a class like this has its root in what the Bible teaches. But if you've been around church for any length of time or been in different churches, different people and different churches have different views, right? Mm -hmm. About what's biblical. That's been with us forever and will be with us until Jesus comes back and there's room 101 what I meant about baptism, room 201, what I meant about the millennium, room 301, what I meant about X, right? Now, there's some things that are just more plain than others that we hang very much important um, ideas and thoughts and perspectives on, but there are a bunch of other things that put you in a place of, wow, well, I see it this way, No, I say it that way, and um, why confessional matters to us is because throughout the history of the church, biblical scholars and great minds have come together to try and wrestle through what does the Bible really teach about the deity of Christ? What does the Bible really teach about how God saves sinners? What does the Bible teach on a myriad of subjects? Not every church subscribes to historic confessions of the faith. Ours happens to do so, and for no extra charge, as my gift to each of your helpful, we have a copy of the Modern English of the Worm. I'm going to give the warm one by now. This is a copy in Modern English of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. It represents an effort of individuals in the 16th century to capture as best understood what the Bible teaches. And you might notice there are chapters 1 beginning with the scripture all the way to, is it chapter, last one is 32, do I remember? On uh, last things, or how does does it? The last judgment. judgment. The last judgment, all right? And everything in between, church, uh, good works, repentance, unto life and salvation, um, decrees of God, so on and so forth. Um, It's one thing to say that you believe in the truth of the Bible and that's what your church stands for. It's another thing to say, and here's how we understand what the Bible teaches, actually, on these subjects as best we can. So, coming into our land of grace, you will want to know that this is our statement of faith in, and as thorough and unpacking. And we have chosen to... Land there as a church, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the historical reasons why we do. Another important word is some of you have already heard it, maybe it's more familiar to some of you than others, is the word reform because we have landed from the get go as a church that (coughs) the Protestant Reformation. most would say is identified with a particular day in history, October 31, 1517. Anybody have any idea of what happened on that day? 95 Theses. That's right. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg and into motion. I don't think Luther necessarily intended to do that, but set into motion a tsunami-like movement that in many ways, and this is why we feel it was so important 500 years ago, recaptured for the Church of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus from a corrupt medieval system of Roman Catholicism. There's one reason why I'm here worshiping and leading and not across the street, though I have sought to be a good neighbor as best I can with the people at St. Mary Magdalene's across the street. But we could not, couldn't be further apart in terms of what we understand the Bible to teach and where we get our authority for making those decisions than we are in these two worlds so paradoxically juxtaposed right across the street from one another. So we're going to talk a good deal about what this means, but it's really, really important to me that you understand that these words that help clarify what we think the Bible teaches and how we teach what the Bible teaches more than anything else, we want our truth to be anchored in. Thus saith the Lord in his word. And that really comes full circle to the Protestant Reformation, because there are two... I know I haven't taken you anywhere yet in your in your notebook. Hang with me. Um, I think this different every time, depending upon what I had for breakfast. That's just before, <laughs> I feel But... Um, <coughs> Two um, paradigms that came out of the Protestant Reformation that had the essence of uh, our confession of faith and what it teaches about salvation and what it means to say that your church is reformed. Not too close. A little too close, even if we were Well, I swing at my elbow. <laughs> 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 in the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm so glad you stopped the feeding to move. I'm not offended. <laughs> okay. The first paradigm out of the Protestant Reformation are what we call the five solas. Anybody take Latin in high school? Nope. No help, huh? All right. I should laugh. can't afford to Anybody know what Sola stands for in Latin? Alone. Alone. Thank you. Right. This is a, a grid, a paradigm that helps us think through the most important things recaptured in the Protestant Reformation. There's another, and, and again, we're talking about what had its... Uh, Genesis in 1517, we celebrated the anniversary of that last year, the 500th anniversary of that. Mm. Okay? The, the other is what we call the Doctrines of Grace, where we're going to spend most of our time these next two weeks, which came out of something called the Synod of Dort in 1618 to 19. It ran the better part of mm. uh, over a year five solas are one of the paradigms, we're going to touch on briefly, and then we'll jump into the doctrines of grace in um, more thorough fashion in a few minutes, so (coughs) sola scriptura Hmm. sola gratis Sola Christus, sola Fide. By the way, I did not take Latin, and I failed miserably at penmanship. <laughs> sola Dea Gloria. Can we work our way through here? This one's not on hard, right? Sure, sure. sure long. This is the foundational principle of the Protestant Reformation, because medieval Roman Catholicism cited the authority of Scripture, but put on par with it the Pope and his infallible pronouncements and church tradition. So you had those coming into play, A Protestant would say, dreadfully muddy in the waters about what's true. So the the, the Protestant Reformers put all the chips right there from the get-go. Because if, if it's scripture alone, then you have to come back in what you teach about anything else to that foundation, that fundamental principle. Sola uh, gracia, grace. Grace, grace alone, not on the effort of man, but solely what God gives in His grace that saves sinners. Sola uh, Christus, this is not hard, grace. right? Who should have taken Latin and all got an A, right? Christ alone, his substitutionary atonement on the cross paid the price in full. His perfect life did what we could never do, and Adam failed to do, and that is sufficient to save sinners. Sola fide, this might be a little, unless you were a Marine, what's that? Faith alone. Faith alone. Right, it's not by human works, but simply the open hand of faith, that trusts and accepts what Jesus has done. And then Sola of gloria, gloria, the gloria of God alone. So these are, <clears throat> and there's an article at the end of your um, uh, section one of your notebook called the Cambridge Declaration. I'd encourage you to read on your own when you have some time to do so. That unpacks this, something that came about toward the end of the 90s with Jim Boyce and others conspiring together to um, advocate something of a modern-day Reformation and unpacking the significance of Sola, scriptura, Horacea, Precious, and De Gloria for the modern church. And I commend that document to you. Um, it, it is at the end of um, tab one. So if I can find it for you, make it easy. Page 19? Yes, yeah. actually, before the mature... Um, so it's not quite at the end. It's not nearly as long as Tulip, so that might be a relief to you as well. But yes, page 19, the Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. All right. Any questions about, I, I realize it's dreadfully burst. Okay, uh, but are important words in terms of thinking about what it is to be a confessional Reformed church. Any any questions about the solace? Okay. Now, this, this gets a little hairy when we jump ahead a century. As so often, many of these things in the church history come out of conflict. Conflict arose in the church over teaching coming out of the Protestant Reformation, advocated by Luther, Calvin in particular, opposed by a pastor by the name of Jacob Arminius, who said, no, what Calvin teaches about what he thinks the scripture says about how God saves sinners is not what should be taught. And so Arminius had his ideas And so the church got together in what was called the Synod of Dort and put forth the Canons of Dort, as in standards or rules, to say, no, we affirm what Calvin taught. And somewhere along the line, it got put into a nifty little flower acronym. And this is why I asked you to read Tulip. Now see how you did your homework. G stands for total gravity. Total total gravity. gravity. I you. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a trick? <laughs> <That's
2: right. laughs> that was a trick question.
0: See you repay your sensor. Right. You. Unconditional election. All right. L. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. I. Irresistible grave. Irresistible grave.
2: Tom, I think you're getting
0: a new plus. <laughs> <laughs> and T. where we're going to land for the next two weeks in terms of attempting to help you gain something of an idea of how we approach what the Scripture teaches about how God saves people like you and me, the doctrines of grace. If you want to turn to tab two in your notebook, page 54. We will dive in. Here are some quotes from some people who have written on this of note since the Protestant Reformation and the Synod of Corinth. B.B. Warfield, founder of Princeton Seminary, evangelicalism stands or falls with Calvinism. That's sometimes a nickname that is given to Reformed theology, or the doctrines of grace. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist English preacher, wrote Calvinism as the gospel and nothing else. And then more modern-day, though um, James Boyce has gone home to be with the Lord already, Phil Reichen wrote in their book, The Doctrines of Grace Preserve the Gospel of Grace. Let's just talk, first of all, about what is grace. Greek word charis, means a gift bringing joy and gladness my son's been staying with us from philadelphia every other week because he's establishing his shop and business here last yesterday was his last day he came in and dumped a load of laundry on the washer for Jan, to ta- although I, 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 I'm a Renaissance man, I do the laundry and dishes too, but on top of it was a note with a gift card for a pedicure and manicure for Jan on top of it. So that made her happy, right? she wasn't expecting that, you know. It was a gift, for joy and gladness. This is the essence of the meaning of the word charis. There are three views, predominantly, about God's grace and salvation. One, the saving work of Christ is not necessary. Not necessary. For salvation. That should sound like what to you? Everything, Everything Right. <laughs> And it's true of every liberal apostate church that's abandoned the gospel. So clearly we're not sometimes Pelagianism, speaking of another historical figure from the past, who tangled with Saint Augustine in the fifth century over how God saved. Pelagius was um, God has every man has everything within himself to accomplish your salvation. There's no need for the saving work of Christ. Clearly, we can take that one off the table. Two, the saving work of Christ is necessary, but not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. That is to say, man must do something. Sometimes called semi-Pelagianism kind of a tweener between Augustine and Pelagius, or Arminianism, after that pastor, Jacob Arminius, that I told you about, objected to Calvin's teaching. And so We're getting a bit of a historical survey here, but every church, to one degree or another, is downstream from what's happened in history. How many of you have ever said the Apostles' Creed in a church service? How many of you ever said the Nicene Creed in a church service? Okay. These are all aspects of theology that have come out of the church of the past and attempts to get the truth right on these subjects. Who is God? Who is Christ? Who is the Spirit? What has been done? So here we have the same thing happening in talking about um, Calvinism or Arminianism. This is really a form of synergism, of God and happening. When we talk about the saving work of Christ is necessary but not sufficient. Three, the saving work of Christ is both necessary and sufficient. Same to work. There's the other view, which is where you're finding yourself today, whether you knew it or not, in Orlando land grace. It is both necessary and sufficient to save sinners. Again, a nickname, I don't know that it's particularly helpful to call it Calvinism because people have associated an aberrant idea of that from the word because of some bad teaching, or reformational soteriology. Soteriology is simply the doctrine of salvation, all right? How God saves sinners. This is opposed to synergism, Monarchism, mono being one. This is God-only gospel, which we think is a more thoroughly accurate and biblical soteriology. But now here's the deal. If you're hanging with me this far, okay? Here's the deal. Acts 17, 10 through 11. Can somebody read those two verses first, please? Right there underneath.
2: The brothers immediately sent Saul and Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so.
0: How would you have felt if you were the people back in Thessalonica? (laughs) Paul's just been there. He travels to Berea. You guys are more noble. But why do you consider them more noble, according to the text? you to search the, the
1: scriptures.
0: Yeah, right, right. So here's the deal. Whatever, wherever you land, and to some degree or another, ever since we've opened the building at Orlando Grace, people are more or less, sometimes completely unfamiliar with where we're heading today and next week. The last thing in the world that I want is for you to go out of here and say, you know what? Pastor Kurt said that total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible and perseverance of the saints are what the Bible teaches. That's good enough for me. That should never be the case on anything taught. If sola scriptura is the foundational principle, then what would make you more noble? Can you have a brilliant vision here? And ethic is to search the scriptures and see is that what the Bible teaches us best I understand? And let that be where you land if you choose to hang around, not simply because I or anybody else says it's true. Does that make sense? That's why that word, biblical, that i since erased, matters more than confessional and reform, though it matters a lot to me that I'm in a confessional church. And I have a clear statement of what the Bible teaches about these things, and that we are in a Reformed church that understands what was accomplished in the Protestant Reformation. So, the doctrines of grace, bottom of page 54. (laughs) I love my uh, (coughs) uh, facetiousness. Simply say, it's not always so simple. God saves sinners. (coughs) This is a God-only gospel. On page 55 are supporting verses about grace as a gift. You can read those on your own. We're actually reading today in the New Testament reading in the service, Ephesians 2, 1-10 where we have perhaps the most familiar of verses about this um, truth of grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I've given you the historical context of the doctrines of grace, a.k.a. the five points of Calvinism, mm-hmm. I have no problem with you calling that That, if you want to. I just want to make sure you understand what we need. <clears throat> Not what has uh, so often been understood by that. And that's why we're going to take some time going through this acronym TULIP. Note, um, though the TULIP acronym, top of page 56, Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of saints. The most common way of labeling these doctrines provides a convenient handle for remembering them. It does not represent the wisest or the best way of defining their content. When necessary, we have three various ones of the labels to reflect more accurately the truth conveyed. And we will do that with the very first of these, total depravity by changing total to the word radical. I'll explain why in a moment. What, what do you think might be a problem with a word like total depravity? Let me, let me introduce you to John. Totally depraved John Harrington, <laughs> okay? You might, if you're hearing that for the first time, what what might you be thinking? Stay away. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away. Why? Because he's totally depraved. <laughs> Which would imply what?
1: That you're as, actually as bad as as bad as you can possibly
0: can be. be. I mean, now think with me through history. What are the what are the common personalities of history that you say totally depraved? Oh, so and so is that? Mm-hmm. Hitler. Hitler, everybody Hitler. Would say or, well, you know, the, yes, Salaam Hussein. Um, so, <clears throat> that's not what we mean. So, we do treat this word with apologies to the framers that created the nifty flower acronym by saying the word radical. Were there any... chemical engineer does a lot of math, right, in his training? Maybe maybe not. Says, I've got to be careful here because you're going to put me on the spot. Anybody <laughs> love loved math growing up? Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> I say radical. What do you think? In numbers.
2: Uh
0: huh. From your math days. What's a radical? Now you're sorry you piped <laughs> up about me. And not, right? <laughs> Thanks for letting me have some fun with you. Anybody remember what? What's the what's the square root of nine? Three, right? Three times three. Not three. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll abandon this uh, <laughs> illustration in the future. Square <laughs> root, right? Because a number times itself that makes another number. It, it's, it's the very root of the number. So, what we're saying when we talk about the human condition being depraved and being radically depraved is that it's depraved at the very root, it permeates the entirety of the being, not that. Somebody is as evil as he can possibly be. Fallen man has an inclination towards sinning that permeates. There's your first point. Permeates his entire being. This does not mean that man is as bad as he can possibly be, but rather that no dimension of this person is exempt from the effects of sin. This doctrine deals with the nature and extent. sin. We are all radically sinful. We cannot take even the smallest steps toward God unless he first intervenes. Lorraine Vettner in his marvelous book, um, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, says, what it does mean is that since the fall, Genesis 3, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he's wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. Now, I want to make my case for this today from the Bible, all right, using the word pictures that Jesus and Paul used to describe man in his sinful, fallen state. Because if we get this truth of radical depravity, that we are as bad off as we are, Due to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, an inherited sin that has come through the human race ever since, there becomes not that I'll hinge my, you know, my case here on the U, the L, and the I and the T, on the logical necessity of them, but I do want to make the point: if this T or R depravity is true then we really are hopeless without God's intervention in the U, L, I, and Does that make sense? Again, I'm never going to argue, hey, logic dictates you believe this. I don't want you going out of here saying, oh, for saying everything on logic. No, but I want you to see the realities here and how that comes into play. I want you, though, however, to see how biblically each of these, I believe, stands up to scrutiny, starting with... Jesus' teaching about our condition. He uses a particular word picture in John 8:34. Would somebody read that verse for us?
2: Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to Eve, you, everyone who commits sin is a slave
0: to sin. Is there anybody who doesn't commit sin? Right? No human being has ever fallen other than Jesus himself. All right? Everyone who commits sin is a what? Yes. Tom, you're keeping me on my toes today. All right. (laughs) What word picture does he use about the nature of being a sinner? Slavery. I was in Memphis last month for the 50th anniversary of the Martin Luther King assassination. The Gospel Coalition had a special conference in terms of how that gospel informs the matter of racial reconciliation. I stood at the um, bottom of the Lorraine Hotel looking up at the um, (coughs) second floor balcony where Dr. King had come out and had been assassinated from across the street. That hotel has been turned into the National Civil Rights Museum, which was an incredibly visceral experience for me, in large part because I was there with three brothers of color from an urban congregation, and to watch how they responded in identifying with their own history, Uh, particularly the very, after you go through the timeline that they have, it's the first easy, but then they take you into the historical roots of African slavery. And it, I just stood in there, my mouth escaped at, at, at the descriptions, the pictures, and the realities of that. And the, the total bondage of people that had been living free in Africa and the slave trade had captured and totally taken over their lives. I'll never think about this word picture in the same way again in light of our own, our own history. So there's word picture number one about our human condition, slavery. Now Paul adds three more, three explicit teachings about our condition. We'll come back to the top, bottom of page 56. Turn over to Top of 57 first, please. May I have a reader for Romans 8, 7 through 8?
2: That is set on the flesh is hostile to God or does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please
0: God. <clears throat> What's the picture here?
1: Well, a hostile.
0: Hostile. Enemies. At war. The mind set on the flesh does not please God. Indeed, what? It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's hostility. While, Romans 5 says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, we'll come back to 56 in a minute. Now let's look at another. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. May I have a reader there?
1: And you were dead in the trespass, of, in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind.
0: All right. What's the word picture here? A very vivid one. Dead. Dead one sense, pardon the zombie illustration in the flesh we're all dead people walking spiritually speaking, dead in trespasses and sins not sick dead, alright now there's one more, Second Corinthians 4, 3-4, somebody else please read and
1: even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God.
0: What's this third word picture from Paul? Blind. Blind. Slave. Enemy. Dead. Blind. Powerful word pictures. <laughs> <In> the, okay, <laughs> all, right, all right. Bottom of the Paul's explicit teaching about our condition uses the word pictures of that war with God, dead in sin, and blinded by sin. Now, as if that's not enough, Paul goes on in Romans 3 with explicit teaching Further, now we're at the middle of page 57, summarizing the devastating picture. The devastating picture of the human race under sin and that's subject to wrath and judgment. Romans 3 9 to 20, kind of a long passage. Somebody maybe who enjoys reading aloud can uh, take us through that, please.
2: for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin.
0: Thank you, Jan. In summary then, top of page 58, sin corrupts the moral nature, the moral nature, none are righteous. Sin corrupts the mind None understands, and then First Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are fallen to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Sin corrupts the will, taking it captive. None seeks God. The 1 Corinthians 2.14 was a reference to sin for up to the mind. John Piper writes, and you read this in your Tulip article if you had a chance to get to it, it's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting our condition to be this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally at odds with God, our grasp of the work of God in redemption will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total, radical depravity, we will be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and wonder of the work of God discussed in the next four points. Questions, comments, thoughts about this This passage,
1: Romans three. Yes, sir. Describes the scene and pilot hmm. by the Jews as an example. Hmm.
0: As an example. Yeah. Uh huh. Never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, <laughs> That's right. That's the center of the Bible. Right yeah, there. well, and I like I Ephesians like 2 4, but God. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Being rich in mercy, right, right. From Absolutely.
1: 321 to 31 is the center. That says a lot.
0: <laughs> now, I doubt, in fact, I, I'm, I'm certain that none of us knew, whatever point, if we even know, when we were converted. You now, I happen to know when and where is my story that was plain to me but at 10.30 a.m. on December 20 that? 14th in 1972 when a man shared the gospel with me and I prayed to receive Christ. I did not understand this I didn't know how <laughs> bad off I was but God was at work revealing his truth of the gospel to me It's only been way down the road that I came to understand I was really a slave to my sin and dead in my trespasses and sins, blinded to the truth, even though I grew up church and felt I was called to be a Lutheran pastor. I'm not slighting the Lutherans here, Luther was the first Lutheran, Um, and uh, at war with God. I had no idea my plight was that bad. But again, we're coming back to what does the scripture say? That this is the plight of humanity, and if it really is that bad, then it must be the intervening work of God's glorious grace. That's the only hope for anybody. What we're gonna seek to do in the remaining four um, of these is to unpack what we believe the Bible teaches about how God intervenes. We have a few moments here unless there are any other comments or questions about our first point, radical depravity. I find in this conversation this is the easiest for everybody to embrace. There's not much controversy here, though it's often hard to now go to these other items and deal with the realities that they present to us too. But I don't, I don't want to rush past any other questions or comments about radical depravity. All right, well let's see if we can make a little headway under um, one of the more uh, challenging of what's to come, unconditional election. We won't tweak this at all. We'll leave it as the you. God has chosen, that's all the word elect or election means. God has chosen his people, not based on anything they have done. That's what we mean by the word unconditional. It's not because of anything we do, but based on his own free grace. The believer freely chooses God because God has chosen him. God's choice is not the result of our faith and holiness, but rather the cause of our faith and holiness. Lorraine Betner again, God is free in consistency with the infinite perfections of his nature to save none, few, many, or all, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will. When I do evangelism, I'll sometimes encounter the objection, well, if God is so loving, why doesn't he just save, you know, and I've talked about the gospel, why doesn't he just save everybody? And sometimes I get flippant and say, come back to me when you have really the better question. I'm being somewhat facetious, I'm trying to get the wheels turning. Well, what, do you, what do you mean come back when I have the better question? The real question is, given how most of us navigate the day without thought for how good and kind God is, and the amazing number of gifts that he gives us, and we thumb our nose at him, we don't care about him, we don't give him a second thought. The more amazing and significant question in my mind is that he saves anybody. (laughs) Let let alone a number which no man can number, Revelation says, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. This is what Bettner is after in this quote. He is free in consistency with the infinite perfections of his nature to save none, few, many, or all, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will. Paul's explicit teaching in this, um, and we turn here because it's the most plain New Testament passage that addresses this, deals with the fact of election and objections. The fact and objections to election. And it would be suicidal for me to try and jump in with that with five minutes remaining. So we won't do that. Any any, uh, closing thoughts, comments, or questions? I would just encourage you again, if you haven't had a chance to read the TULIP article, that you go ahead and do that, even though they reverse the order because they understand that this is how we experience these things. But anything before we close?
1: You're part of uh, which, I'm trying to remember the name of it, Acts? X-
0: no, we're not part of the Acts yeah. 29 network. X-29. No, we are not. We yeah. have looked into that. Right. We have no affiliation. We are okay. non denominational independent, though, if you had to hang a label on us, it would be for descriptive purposes, in my mind. And we have chosen to put it this way a, uh, a, re- a reformed, fellowship, practicing believers' baptism. If it's helpful to say we're a Reformed Baptist church, you can say that. We tweak it that way and it becomes clear when we have a session on baptism and what we teach and how we practice that. The A29 network is a church planting network that we have been intrigued about in the past. At a particular time when we were looking into that, there was enough that gave us uh, pause that we did not move ahead. There's some things that have happened, new leadership. Um, it's in a far better place than it was before. It's causing us to take uh, another look at it, but um, that's still a way down the line. No decision on affiliation would take place um, without Pastor Jim weighing in on it. Right. I would never want to do that to anybody. So. Um, but one of the reasons that we are open to a nine is that Of the four things they hold to you, one of them is the Reformed faith. Right. uh, Different HU9 churches will be more frontal about that than others, but they all subscribe to similar confessions. Because we
1: were part of a couple of different Reformed Baptist groups, and we've had problems uh, in our past church. Um, So I'm just wondering if you were part of any kind of group like that, or you just decided
0: not to. No. (laughs) You know, the church came out of First Baptist Orlando, which is a Southern Baptist convention church. At the time, you couldn't have the stance that we have on baptism, which again, I'm going to save for that controversial discussion when we come to it and we can address that. Though we only teach and practice believers' baptism, you must be able to make a credible profession of faith in order to get into the pool. And it... Baptism is a requirement for membership here. Um, but of the because we have something of a unique stance on that, the SBC at that time was not open to our being in that fellowship or association. I think now they've changed their mindset on that and are more open to churches that take the view that we do. Um, but other, other uh, networks that we've looked at for any number of reasons, because of some of the problems that I think we've talked even privately about, um, have given us pause. We haven't gone that way either. Still have a desire to (laughs) affiliate somewhere, somehow. Um, And I would say maybe the 29 network is one of the more possible, favorable ones. But (laughs) I I can assure you that decision will not be entered into lightly. It's a very significant one. And congregational ownership, I think, is going to be pretty important to that conversation. Thank you. Good question. Father, thank you for our chance to be together. Um, We're grateful that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together, chose us before the foundation of the world, called us by your Spirit, and gave us eyes to see the glorious atonement of our Lord Jesus, and through this day, keeps us from falling, and is able to present us faultless before the throne <coughs> the without stumbling. Now to you be the glory. We pray that you will grant us hearts full as we worship and praise you today as we sit under your word. Lord, I pray that um you would do what you alone can do in our midst this morning as we continue throughout the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys are great. Appreciate being able to share this time with you.